0: You're listening to a sermon from Free City Church in Lawrence, Kansas. We exist to extend the glory of God by making disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Free City Church, my name is Casey and I'm one of the pastors here and uh, I pray this finds you doing well. I pray that this finds you in the room with other believers, even though right now we may not be in the same room. I pray that most of you have already trans- have gotten uh, to small Sunday morning city groups. I-, I pray that you find yourself among believers under the preached word. I pray that as you looked and as you walked through the liturgy, I pray that as someone read Ephesians 5, 21 through 33, I pray they were able to get past verse 22. I pray that you were kind to them. And even as you heard words that are hard for us to hear, words like submitting and and submit, I I pray that you pressed in deeper into what the scriptures have to say to us about marriage. And I, I ask, that though uh, the, the very first part of this has some controversial words, some words that ring in our modern ears that set us kind of on edge because of abuse that we've seen, I ask that you be patient with us for the next three weeks as we unpack all that Ephesians five twenty-one through thirty-three has to say. And I, I actually, we're not going to be able to unpack all of it. And we're not actually going to walk through it, you know, like verse by verse in sequential order. What we're planning on doing is we're looking at some major themes of what God designed and what God says about marriage. And as we start that, there's some things that we need to just kind of highlight. When Cruz was little, uh, my son... He loved everything about food. Everything associated with food. He loved to help cook, he loved to eat, he would wake up in the morning and one of the first things he would ask is, what is for dessert tonight? I mean, he loved He even loved going to the grocery store. Matter of fact, Cruz, when he talks about the things that he wants to do when he grows up, there's a list of things that have changed over and over. He's wanted to be a professional football player Probably not likely if he has my genes. He's wanted, to be, um, he's wanted to be a studier like me. That's what he calls my profession. He's wanted to be an army guy. But there is one thing that has been consistent with everything else that he wants to be. He wants to own a food truck. He wants to own a food truck and he wants to call it the sweet treat trucking company. And he wants to hire all his friends and he wants to drive around town eating sweet treats. One of the the times Kinsey had him and he was helping uh, with grocery shopping, he points out a sign that was out in the middle of the floor. And he says, Mom, what does that say? And she looks at it and says, Cruz, it says, Cuidado. And he said, Cuidado? I've never heard. What does that mean? He says, well, the other side says caution. It means be careful. This is something that could be dangerous. We need to be cautious. We need to be aware. And he just loved that. When I came home from work, he loved to label things, cuidado. He would say, Dad, look at this over here. This here, cuidado. And I remember responding once, and I said something to the extent of like, yes, very peligroso. And I think I said to him, that's very dangerous, but I'm not even 100% sure. But he loved to point out things that were dangerous. You know, as we step into this text... And as we walk like we need to walk the last several weeks, still working out this pandemic thing. And now so many things in our culture being exposed. And I actually just want to say this, that there is actually nothing in our culture now that the pandemic brought, or there's nothing in our culture now that the death of George Floyd brought in. It was already here. It's just been exposed. And there's so many things as we walk around it that we need to label cuidado. We need to label as, we need to be cautious. You know, one of those things you know, is that we can be blind to so many things. You know, last week we talked about uh, the blindness of our sin nature. That sin is much more like being than doing, and it loves to hide. Like there's a deep blindness in all of us that the Holy Spirit of God is leading us to understand and to confront. But there are things in us that we are blind to. And we need to know this. Like, like we need to know this. Like you need to know that there is a huge danger for you to want to hear something a certain way. For you want to see something a certain way. For you want to like understand something a certain way. There is a nature inside of us that loves to hide that we can be blind to. Like I do this. Almost a year ago this week, like a year to the date, one day this week, Kinsey remembered the date. Quinn broke her arm. She fell out of her bunk bed and she broke her arm. It was late at night. And the first thing I did on examining it was I declared it's not broken. I didn't have any evidence. I mean, obviously it wasn't like mangled or sticking out in some weird degree, but I declared it's not broken because I didn't want it to be broken. I didn't want it to be broken. I knew it would be expensive, I knew it would be hard, and so I said what I wanted to hear. I didn't want it to be broken, but the next morning when it was swollen, we went to the doctor, when they took an x-ray, it was broken. And I didn't want it to be broken because we've been receiving bills for almost an entire year from that broken arm. Like, sometimes I am at danger of hearing things, seeing things, interpreting things on what I want them to say. We, we are in danger of doing this with evidence all around us. We are in danger of looking at the situation of what has unfolded in the last few weeks with the death of George Floyd or and the protests. We are in danger of looking at those and making the evidence say what we want it to say. It's dangerous. we're also in danger of drawing lines everywhere around this topic of injustice and raising a bar so high that no one can even enter into the conversation. I just want to say this. If God's word says that it is a lamp unto our feet, not, a, not like a floodlight to the horizon. If it's a lamp unto our feet, that means that real deep change in people happens incrementally. We need a lot of patience. We're also in danger of passing by voice after voice after voice after voice until we find someone that says what we want to hear like you've got to you've got to admit you've got to admit it, it, it's a little bit crazy to pass after like Hundreds of black voices until we find one voice that says something that we want to hear. This requires just healthy self awareness. If sin is in me, and that means like I want to see evidence that supports where I am, or if sin is in me, that means I want to hear messages that support where I am, like I need to apply questions when I hear things that support what I want to hear. Like, first off, you just need to ask the question, What do I want to hear? Like what do i want to hear there's lots of things that i want to hear then you need to ask questions like this why why do i want to hear that and we need to ask questions like am i being reasonable with the evidence that i'm seeing is there more that i need to know more than i need to read more that i need to consider is there a reason i don't want blank to be true like there's danger But as we step into this text, there's always danger when we go to the scriptures. There's always danger of the sin that's encamped in my life will make a stronghold that I won't want to hear what it's saying. And that's true with all texts, but some texts that come across what our culture values or wants to believe. Even as Christians who've walked with the Lord a long time, who may have very varied experiences, some texts are more dangerous than others. So this here, as we step into what God says about marriage, like we all bring something into that. And we want to bring in some self-awareness of, what do I want this to say? Does it say what I want it to say? Or am I making it say what I want it to say? And so this is, like Cruz would say, this area is a little cuidado. But as we walk through over the next several weeks, we'll be working with these verses over and over and over. Ephesians 5, 21-33. Here, Paul tackles uh, the subject of marriage. He's going to go on to say that being a Christian should affect the way you raise your kids, the way you parent, the way you work, even the way that we battle spiritual darkness. But here, he has so much to say about Christian marriage. He's going to say this. He's going to say the gospel should change the way you do marriage. He's going to say the gospel should add some sort of like otherworldly effect upon your marriage that reflects something beautiful about his relationship with the church, something beautiful about how he has approached us and what he's doing in us. He's going to say that he wants to display a beautiful picture of the life, death, and resurrection love that drew sinners to him and beautifies them as he is with them in the marriage he's gonna say all kinds of things see we won't be working through this text necessarily sequentially you know because it starts off with the most cuidado area it starts off with a word that we don't want to hear it starts off with a word that says submit but we're going to jump around. I promise we're going to get to that. You're just going to have to hang in. We're just kind of saving the biggest jump for last. But, but right here, we want to look at three things this morning. And so if I'm organizing this text, I'm trying to answer three questions. And the first one is, why should we talk about it? Why should we talk about marriage? The second thing is, what destroys it? What is, the da- is marriage in danger of? What destroys marriage? And then the final question is simply, what is it? What is marriage? And so let's get started first. Why talk about marriage? And the simplest answer is this. The Bible talks about marriage. The Bible says a lot about marriage. There are lots of reasons to talk about it. But the simple reason is we are Christians and the Bible talks about marriage. To describe it, it actually talks about it quite a bit. But even easier for us, why talk about marriage? It's next. You know, we we have a habit of preaching through books of the Bible and we just finished what came before this and it is next. And, And we do that because we actually feel like it's the least likely way to screw everything up. You know, if someone comes and they say, man, why don't you preach about hell more? Or why don't you preach about heaven more? We would say, man, we preach about it, about the rate that it talks about it, where we work in the Gospels, we work in the epistles, we jump back to the Old Testament and we work there, and we typically work through verse by verse, chapter by chapter. Sometimes we take it more like topic by topic as they come up, and so we'll preach larger swaths, but we typically just work. So why talk about marriage? It's next. You know, we also might ask this. We, we have lots of single people in our church. So why don't just talk things that affect them? But I would say it's next. Or, or be even more than that of just being next. We need to understand marriage. Even if you never get married, you need to understand and love marriage because God loves Marriage. God is excited about marriage, and as children of God, we should start to love the things of God more and more as we walk with God. So let me just kind of even unpack this a little bit different. Like, some of us need to understand what marriage is because we need to work on our marriage. Like, look at some of this text with me. Like, look, look at verse 28. Verse 28, it says, Husbands, should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. Now, now we work this with this over and over, but I want to point out three words, love, nourish, and cherish. Husbands, I'm not going to unpack everything because I actually don't think we'd have to work a whole lot on this. Like, if you need to work on your marriage, apply those words. Did what you do or what you say, did it feel or look or sound loving? Like, apply that grid to your life. Or, or did that feel nourishing? Or you could say this, is it cherishing? Do I even know what cherishing means? Like it gives us these words. Like you need to know, those words are probably in the vows, unless you had a really terrible preacher do your wedding. Loving, nourishing, cherishing. But it doesn't stop there. Look, look at verse 25. In verse 25, and we're jumping around a little bit, it says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for it. Jesus loved the church and died for the church. If your marriage is struggling, have you tried something like sacrificing? Have you tried applying sacrificial love, which means saying, what are her needs? What might she want and she desire above my needs? What am I laying down? And even if you're like, man, I am sacrificing a lot. If you're hearing this, it's something short of dying. So what would we apply to marriage? Like, Is it loving? Is it nourishing? Is it cherishing? Is it sacrificial? And then verse 33, look at it. It says, however, that each one of you loves his wife as himself. Now, I've already picked on on the husbands. And then it says, and let his wife see that she respects her husband. Like, if your marriage is struggling, have you tried being, like, decent and just respectful? Like, like sometimes it's just as simple as biting your tongue and smiling and not saying anything. Like, that can be respectful to the fullest. Like, I know I'm going to love you by not saying anything and just put a smile on my face from Kinsey. Like, I know that smile looked. And when it happens, it makes me feel loved. Like all of these words start to unpack, which is those words we have lots to work on. Start applying love, nourish cherish, sacrifice, and respect, and see what happens. I have one more thing to touch on in verse 31. In verse 31, it says, and this describes like the permanency of marriage. It says this, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. Yeah, this speaks something incredible to the permanency of marriage and the nature of marriage. And so, if you're in a struggling marriage, like apply those words because the way it describes, look at what it says the two will become one flesh. This did not say marriage is like a house. So if it's on fire, you get the people out. This did not say that marriage is like a business. So when it's no longer profitable for you, you cut ties. This didn't say that marriage is like a parent-child relationship. So one person might outgrow the other person and leave. This says marriage is like one flesh. And that means one organism. God says that marriage is like the relationship that you have with your legs. Like the relationship that you share with the legs that are on your body right now, like no sane person would ever just say, "Uh, I want to cut them off. Now, like when you look at your legs, like sometimes legs get broken or hurt. And what do you do? You mend them and give them time to heal. Sometimes legs disappoint you in your appearance, and what do you do? You preach in jeans so people don't look at your legs. Sometimes, like, legs are weaker than they should, so what do you do? You press them to make them stronger. Don't skip leg day. You're going to look weird. Like, you press it to make it stronger. And you might be saying this right now, like, listen, I- I've seen war-, war movies, like Civil War movies, and they cut off legs all the time, but no one wants to cut them off only in the darkest and most drastic circumstances when gangrene is setting in and it's going to take your life that the Bible would look at a marriage and say, it's permitted to divorce. And so if this finds you and you're in a struggling marriage, it gives words for us to apply, but it also gives this lofty thing of what marriage is. Is there ever a reason to dissolve your marriage? It's permitted in drastic circumstances. But never because you think there's a more suitable or better pair of legs out there. And and, and never because you think there's another pair of legs that are going to make you happier. Like the first reason, like why do we talk about this? We talk about it to instruct marriages, my marriage, lots of marriages out there. We need to apply these biblical words. You know, the other reason is others need to understand what marriage is because they might want to be married too badly. In, in verse 26 and 27, it, it, it goes on and it adds these words, sanctifying and washing. Like there's a sanctifying effect and a washing effect of marriage. And that means like if there's a deep, deep stain in your soul, Like a deep stain. Like deep stains have to be scrubbed really, really hard. And so you need to know that sometimes marriage is not just all romance. It's not just all sex. It's not just all butterflies. Like sometimes it's difficult, but you think the reality of marriage is going to fix things that it won't fix. It's just going to expose things under those things that you didn't know were there. See, the danger for some people is they really, really, really want to be married. And that's okay to want to be married, but they really, really want to be married and they're in danger of getting across the aisle from someone they shouldn't be married because they're not in love with that person. They're in love with the idea of marriage. And so we need to know what marriage is. Because even if you step into marriage and it was just kind of like, I just really, really, really want to be married and then you find out later, man, I don't think I married someone who was wise for me. Verse 31 doesn't go away. And so we need to talk about it because some of us want to be married too badly. We need to talk about it because others need to understand what marriage is because you are too afraid of it. Maybe you love your freedom and independence too much. Maybe you've experienced deep hurt of a bad marriage or or maybe you've experienced it growing up of something way less than ideal and you're too afraid of it and you don't even know what it can be. So we need to talk About marriage and if you hold your opinion of marriage higher than what God says marriage is you need to know that you are mocking God you look at God and you say yeah you might really talk about the greatness of marriage and the beauty of marriage and what it can do but my experience is this so you can't be trusted God wants to enter into those doubts and enter into those fears the word of God is to instruct us on what it is and once again, even if you never get married, because you're a child of God, you need to understand what marriage is. God created marriage. He gave us marriage. He wants us to love marriage. God loves marriage. Just look at all the words that are dedicated to it. Like If you look at this, like if you look at the parent-child relationship, it gets four verses from chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. Or, or if you look at the master servant relationship, it gets five verses. And we should understand that as like boss and worker relationship. We'll unpack that later. In, in chapter 6, verses 5 through 9, five verses. But the husband wife relationship, in verses 22 through 33, it gets 12 verses. Almost three times anything else. There are a lot of things dedicated to marriage because the gospel shapes all of these relationships. God wants to shape your marriage. Like, why talk about it? God made it. God loves it. God wants to instruct you in it. God wants to enter into your marriage or to shape your view of a future marriage or to make you understand what's beautiful about all marriages. And it's next. I mean, so here we are. And so, first, why talk about it? Second... This text tells us something about what destroys it. And just to say it very simply, selfishness destroys marriage. Like you can bring all kinds of other scenarios and other additives, and selfishness can look very, very different in one form to the other. But at the end of the day, it is selfishness that destroys marriage. Like, look at verse 21. Now, we started in verse 21. It actually goes to the section before this where it says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And what this is, is verse 21 is the end of a really, really long sentence that began in verse 18. And so submitting is actually the fifth participle that is dependent upon one verb that is this, be filled. Uh, Up in verse 18, it says, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Be filled in the Spirit. And then all these participles start to explain what it looks like to be filled with the Holy Spirit. How we participate with God to fill our lives with something that looks like the fruit of the Spirit. Something that looks like God is in our life. And so when it says submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, it's saying this is one way that we walk in the fullness of the Spirit of God. And, and then it, it continues. So ultimately, verse 21 is like a hinge verse. And so it ends the last idea to say everything that follows after this, all of these relationships, they, so, they show how we can submit to Christ and walk in these important relationships that God has given us to steward. And so, but what is the opposite of submission? Or what's the enemy of Submission. It's selfishness. It's I I don't want to come under that or I don't want to do that for you. I want you to do something for me. I want to be in charge. I want to work around. I want to orientate all things around me. And so right there when we start in verse 21, it says you need to be walking in the spirit, be filled with the spirit, and then we have all these participles and then it ends with submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. It means there's something in me that doesn't want to. And I think the best way to describe that Is selfishness. You know, and you have to deal with not just selfishness. You have to deal with your selfishness because it's the only selfishness you have access to. You know, this doesn't open up like your selfishness needs to be the biggest enemy of your marriage. Notice that I didn't say your wife's selfishness or your husband's selfishness is the biggest enemy of your marriage because you only have access to battle your selfishness directly and so the danger of selfishness we would say lots of things but selfishness it makes you blind to your own selfishness but it also makes you hyper aware of the other selfishness like you can write down list after list in your mind of all the things that they've done to center around themselves or all the things that they did that served themselves But then when it comes to all the things that you did, it's just kind of this open category of we all sin. The enemy of your marriage is your selfishness. You know, there's other words that we could use. We could say self-centered or self-absorbed or self-serving and all of those have self 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 or or we could say words like egotistical or or prideful Like, like i have a thesaurus like i could just keep going on and on and on but they're all the words that pull everything pull all the evidence around you it's thinking about you when we say the enemy of marriage is selfishness Uh, the theologians have used a latin term incurvitus in se Which it means that there is something in you that curves everything upon yourself. It's curved around you. There is a sin nature so deep that it starts to interpret everything with what I think or what I want. Like it's so natural to us. It grows so indigenously. It doesn't need a lot of fertilizer. It can thrive all by itself. And also when you say something in Latin, it just sounds legit. But like this natural thing in us, Martin Luther describes it like this. He says, This, our nature, by the corruption of first sin, being so deeply curved on itself, that's where that would be, in curvetus in se. So deeply curved in on itself that it only bends the best gifts of God toward itself and enjoys them as in plain in the works righteousness or by hypocrites, or rather even uses God himself in order to attain these gifts. But it also fails to realize that it so wickedly, curvitedly, and viciously seeks all things, even God, for its own sake. When it starts off as a hinge verse in verse 21 to say submitting one another out of reverence or fear for Christ, it's doing war against the selfish nature inside of us. The enemy of your marriage is self-thinking and self-justifying of the self. Selfishness blinds our views. It blinds our views of ourselves and it magnifies the views of others. And so the first thing that we would just want to say is selfishness. It makes us blind. Selfishness also will always find justification to excuse actions, motives, and thoughts. And like, you, you know what that sounds like. like it leads you to, to the most obvious backhanded apologies where you say like, Hey, babe, I, I am so I can't believe you think I said that. That's not what I meant. I mean, I would never say anything like that. That is a nice way of saying, I am so sorry, you are so stupid for thinking that's what I said, when really the reality is probably she got the message exactly what you wanted to say. You were just too scared to say it. We'll find justifications. We'll find excuses. We won't want to deal with it. It always builds a justifying excuse. And so, when we say what's the enemy of marriage, and I'm saying it's your selfishness. Obviously, when both people look at one another and say, my personal selfishness is the biggest enemy of this marriage, you're going to find deep, deep intimacy and happiness and joy. There will be an intimacy that is treasured and as warm that will shine like a city on a hill. But what if only one person decides to make their selfishness the enemy? Even if just one person decides to do that, I still argue that it is a step in the right direction and it will make change. Tim Keller in The Meaning of Marriage, he talks about this. He says, it may be that one of you decides to operate on the basis of verse 21 and one of you does not. In this case, let's say, you are the only one who decides my selfishness is the thing I'm going to work on. What will happen? Usually there's not much immediate response from the other side, but often... Over time, your attitude and behavior will begin to soften your partners. He or she can see the pains you are taking and it will be easier for your spouse to admit his or her faults because you are no longer always talking about them yourself. So if both of you decide to work on your selfishness as a minister to the other, the prospects of your marriage are great. But even if only one of you does it, your prospects are still good. Your selfishness will always be able to find a way to justify. But it can start to stop with you. You know, the first thing, why do we need to talk about this? And the answer is because God talks about it a lot. The, the, The second thing, what is the enemy of all marriages? And it's your selfishness and you have access to your selfishness in a way no one else does. And so we must talk about this. But then finally, what, what is marriage? Like, like, what is it? You know, it, it's so common play, but like if we talk about it, like marriage is different from all other relationships because you have to file with the government to do it. You know, you don't fill out any paperwork to be friends with someone. But if you want to marry someone, you fill out paperwork. I get something different. And historically, it's been understood in a different way than we naturally understand it now. What is marriage? Marriage is a covenant made before God and others, promising future love. Like like the Bible is very clear that marriage is a binding promise of, of future love. Like, look at verse 31. In verse 31, Paul quotes from Genesis 2, and he says this, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That, that word that it says translated hold, as hold fast is translated in older translations as cleave. And so if you look at, at that word, the cleave word, it comes from a Hebrew word called debak. It means to be glued together. Two separate enti- entities are now held together in this really impactful way that we now treat them as one thing. And so, the picture of two individuals walking down, you know, in separate times, but when they leave, they leave together. You know, the picture is they come in with different last names, but when they walk out, they have the same last name. The the picture is, like, up to that point, you could champion the individual. Beyond that point, we protect the union, we protect the marriage. Like, it says, Cleave. It's used to describe. Binding contracts between us and God over and over, Deuteronomy 10, verse 20, 11, 22, Joshua 22, verse 5. But it's also used all the time, especially in the Old Testament, Old and New Testament, to describe marriage a binding relationship that's a promise about what I will do in the future. Like, like listen to what it says, like Malachi 2, verse 14. Now Malachi is answering why God will not answer their prayers. And he's going to use the picture of marriage. And so it says this, But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. And so God was refusing to answer prayers because men were walking away from their wives. They were breaking a binding promise. At one time, they said, I want to be with you. And then it got later in the day, I don't want to be with you anymore. It said it's a binding promise. Or, Or we could look at Proverbs 2, verse 17. And so this is speaking about adultery. It says, she who forsakes the companion of her youth, that means marriage, the companion of her youth getting married, and forgets the covenant of her God. The binding promise of future love. Whatever tomorrow brings, I'm still going to choose you. And so, <clears throat> or we could look at Ezekiel 16, verse 8. Once again, using the marriage covenant to show the binding promise between us and God, it says this. And God is talking, When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love, and I spread the corner of my garment over you. And covered your nakedness, I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord, and you became mine. When the Bible talks about a binding promise, it's talking about this kind of marriage relationship that's future oriented, that I will choose you. I mean, marriage is not just because you say I love you. I mean, you say I love you to, to a lot of people, but you're not married to A Marriage is something different. Marriage is saying, I will choose to love you no matter what tomorrow looks like. I mean, I know weddings have been a little bit different during this pandemic thing. And so maybe you're not going to as many. But I mean, think about the vows. I'm going to love you even if we're rich or if we're poor. I'm going to love you if we're sick or if we're healthy. I'm going to love you until death do we part. That doesn't mean I know I'm going to feel it. It means I'm going to choose to do loving things. And I'm promising before God and before others. Marriage is a binding promise. I mean, deep down, like, we know it's a promise for the future. Like, we know deep, deep down, because every good romance song has those kind of lyrics in it. I mean, let me, like, think about Faithful by Journey. Like, they say the road ain't no place to start a family. Right down the line, it's been you and me. And loving a music man ain't always what it's supposed to be. Oh, girl, you stand by me. I'm forever yours Faithfully, I mean, so right, like right there, like this beautiful song says, "I'm going to always be there." I'm not just saying, "Man, I really, really love you right now, and that's good enough." I will always be there. Or, Or, or think about like Whitney Houston in the Bodyguard: "I will always love you. Like if I should stay, I would only be in your way, so I'll go. But I know I'll think of you every step of the way, and I." I, 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 will always love you. Will always love you, my darling you. And then there's like some mm, going on. I mean, she's saying I'm making a promise about the future. It might be difficult. And if you saw the movie, it did get difficult. But I will choose to love you. All the beautiful music and poetry, like when it describes love, it always goes to this place of I will always be there. And that is something we have deep in our hearts. Like I want to know, are you going to love me when your life rubs against my life and it exposes something ugly in my life? I I, want to know, are you going to be there when you find out just how sloppy I am or how lazy I am or how driven I can be? I want to know if you're going to love me when I tell you the story of what happened to me that I haven't told anyone. I want to know, are you going to love me when I gamble all in on something and it just doesn't work out? That's what marriage is. Marriage is much, much, much more than a declaration of present love. It is a binding promise of future love. No matter what tomorrow brings, I will love you. And just to end, like why why is that so important? Why do we need to look at this? The impact of broken marriages upon people is so vast. The impact of people at one time saying, I will always love you, I will always choose you, and, and then walking away, it is so vast. Like the wreckage is far reaching. Like it causes poverty and insecurity. It makes little boys or little girls being too envious of marriages and making them susceptible to things, or, or it makes them too afraid of it. Like it, the vast nature of it, it, it's a wreckage in our society. Like we need instruction. Because when we're in, in marriage, all of a sudden there will be a fight or there will be a misunderstanding. And if you're newly married, you know, it usually happens within the first year, but all of a sudden that thing happens and you think, I married the wrong person. And you didn't marry the wrong person that person is supposed to rub up against your life and cause you to see flaws. And you're supposed to rub against their life and cause them to see flaws. And that's why marriage is a binding promise. Because if it's not a binding promise about future love, as soon as it gets uncomfortable, we just walk away. And that's starting to become a reality all around us. In seminary, I was was in this class, it was called Helping the Adolescent. And uh, we spent several weeks on how do we counsel parents and kids in the wake of divorce. And the list, I remember looking at the list. like It was saying things like this. Never speak badly about the other parent in front of the kids. Always be patient, polite, and gracious. Never use or try to sway kids to your side. Be slow to speak, quick to listen. When information is known, always assume the best. Don't assume the darkest or the worst. And it says, work hard to communicate clearly. The list went on and on and on. And I raised my hand and I said, Dr. Cornine, if they could do that they wouldn't be getting a divorce. And Dr. Cornine, just the gentlest human you've ever been around, he just smiles. He just smiles like this little light went off in him, but it actually probably went on in me. He just smiled and he looked and he said, the hard work of separating peacefully for the sake of kids is often no harder than reconciling a marriage. which is usually the best for kids by far. When the Bible talks about marriage, it talks about it in this beautiful and gracious way. It also talks about marriage in this very heavy way. That's why everyone thinks you should be careful about who you marry. Do you remember Ezekiel 16 verse 8? It says, when I passed by you again, and this is God walking by and seeing us stranded upon a road with no help or no beauty about us, with nothing to offer. When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age of love. And I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness, need and shame. He covered it. Then it says, I made my vow to you. And entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. The reason why marriage is a binding promise is because God has bound himself to us in an incredible way. He says, I made a vow to you. I bound myself to you and you became mine. Like there's no place in this where the proposal is coming the other way. God walked by, saw need and was moved by compassion and entered in and made promises to us. Make promises to us like it is Him stopping, clothing you, promising us faithfulness. It is the covenant with God that changes us. It makes us the kind of humanity that we're supposed to be. You know, and then it looks like this in, in verse 25 of this verse where it's saying. In Ephesians 5, it says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might be sanctifying her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and blameless. What do both of those look like? Both of those look like We weren't the beautiful people we needed to be, but as God made binding promises to us and entered in and said, you are mine, it changed us. It changed us. You know, but just like any marriage proposal, a gospel proposal has this element that we have to say yes. Just like any marriage proposal, you have to say yes to enter in. And this is a moment. Don't let Jesus pass you by. Like, don't let Jesus pass you by. Say yes when he is pressing your heart. It's a moment. And, And that might look really, really different. You know, for you, it might be the first time that you say, man, I want Jesus in my life. I know I need Jesus in my life. And it would say, don't let him pass by. You say yes. Or it might be, I need Jesus in my marriage. It has become dark and difficult. There are landmines everywhere. We can't have a conversation without getting exploded. Say yes. Start to apply these words. God, you're right. I'm wrong. Do battle with your selfishness. Or In your singleness you might just be too afraid of marriage or too wanting of marriage and you just need to say yes to jesus whatever he has for you he is good you see we saw something in ezekiel 16 about this entering in this binding covenant and it made us beautiful. We saw something in Ephesians 5, 25 through 27 that he's working with us to make us holy without blameless, to make us beautiful. And then we jump to the very end of the Bible in Revelations twenty two seventeen, And it says, The spirit and the bride say, Come. And let the one who hear say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who desires to take the water of life without price come. This is me saying right now that if you want this, come. If the failings of this world have made you thirsty, come. If the hurting of your marriage has made you hungry, come. If the long waiting has made you desirous, come. The life-giving, soul-filling water of salvation has been paid for with Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. The Scriptures say, come. But once again, like, like Cruz labeling areas, cuidado, this is dangerous. We're in danger of saying, I'll come later. Or or we're in danger of looking at the invitation to start to work on my marriage and saying, "Uh, it's going to be difficult, I'll do it later. Or we're in danger of saying, man, I know I shouldn't marry that person, but I just, God, you didn't provide someone else. This is an invitation to say, I may be in danger. God, I need you to come. Help us come. Where do you need to accept the invitation of God? Let me pray for us. Jesus, we need you. Jesus, when I look around at marriages, we are in danger. Lord, and and some of it, I mean, it all eventually comes that it's my responsibility and I have to But some of us started with never seeing how a relationship is done right. And so we are overly scared or overly desirous or we don't know what to do. And so, Lord, I just pray whatever that invitation is before us, we would step in it. But, Lord, we're also in danger. Some of us have looked at the bride of Jesus. We've looked at your bride. And we've been really, really critical. What you say you're doing is beautiful and that you're patient. We become impatient. And we don't give the patience that you give. And we're critical of the church and we're critical of you. Lord, I pray that this would land on ears that hear. And Lord, we would just come. In Jesus' name, amen. Free City, I love you and I'll see you soon.